Amen. Amen. Evening, everybody. Always uh, good to be here and say hi and welcome, especially if you're new again. Uh, we do like to think that we're quite a welcoming bunch. Uh, let Andrew know if we're not. Um, but um, I hope you feel at home tonight and that God is already doing good things and stirring good things. And, and let's pray that there's, there's more to come because uh, there's always more to come with God. Uh, so, and happy holidays, by the way, to those who are lucky enough to be in that position. Um, I don't know who, who is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's the teachers in the room right there. And uh, unlucky if you're not yet, but uh, as we approach Easter, uh, let's just be mindful of that. Think about that little video that we all ignored right at the beginning because we were all chatting, which said pause and stop and good moment to draw back and just consider some bigger things going on in our lives, how we're doing with God. Um, It's always a good time to do that, but I think especially through Lent as we approach Easter and all that that means. So continuing to look at something quite big tonight, but a random silly little question for you to begin with. Um, If you were to be remembered forever by one little story or incident from your life so far that people would keep on hearing all over the world down through the ages, what would you pick? Um, have a little think about that. It's not very important or interesting. I, as, I'm not sure I can answer my own question. Uh, I'd be fairly horrified by quite a few things that I definitely wouldn't want people to be saying down through the ages about me. One or two stories. There's a few little random sort of quirky things, I guess. Um, I swam naked across the Thames in the middle of London once. Um, fell into the sea lion pond at the zoo when I was a little boy. There was the time when I, I hugged and kissed a girl that I hadn't seen for quite some time before I realised that it wasn't the girl that I thought it was. Mildly embarrassing. There's the the odd little achievement. Would I be interested in that? Not really. I managed to struggle around the London Marathon a few years ago. Some of you remember that. Um, Helped Cambridge University thrash Oxford at a few sports. That was good. And let's hear a cheer for the boat race result this afternoon. Just, Just throwing that in there right there. Maybe you could uh, think of a little incident that you wouldn't mind being retold through the course of of history and and some people would know that about you. I'm guessing that you'd choose something that showed you up in a pretty good light, something that uh, indicated some kind of success in your life more than a failure. I guess it depends how we define success. Anyhow, as far as I know, there's only one moment in the Gospels, in the the biblical account of, of Jesus' life, where he says, this moment where this person does this thing is going to be told all around the world, all down the ages, forever. There could be another one, and correct me if I've got that wrong, but I think there's only one. And it's the story that I've been given to uh, speak about and for us to consider tonight. So we're going to look at it in just a minute. You might want to be finding John chapter 12. John 12. And we're going to read the first um, eight verses in, our, in this series of Lent readings some of the readings from the gospel accounts leading up to the events of Easter. And here's a really beautiful one. As we pause, as we take stock, as we step back from a busy world, consider big things, here's a great little story, a story that has been told over a long period of time because Jesus said that it would. Are we there, John 12? The words are on the screen as well. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. 
He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. And then actually in the version of this story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, that most scholars seem to think is the same incident. There is one which might be separate in Luke, but this one is considered the same. These words are then added that Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus always speaks true things. Here we are. Speaking about these things, speaking about this woman, we're considering then what the Lord wants to say, what God wants to say, not what Tim wants to say, but what the Lord wants you to hear to us tonight through this little event, strange to our ears, isn't it? Odd little event, at a dinner party, in a private home, in a little village in Israel, in AD 30 or roughly there. I'm going to zoom out just for a moment, for a few moments, uh, and then before we zoom back into the story, I've got three things to say about it from these verses, but just zoom out to a bigger level for a minute. When Jesus was asked effectively to summarize how to succeed as a human being on this planet, what successful living looks like, how to live according to the original design, God's original design for each of us, and I'm guessing our ears are pricking up because we kind of want to know that. In our way, however you define it, we all want to know what successful living looks like while we're alive, don't we? What a successful life looks like and is so that we flourish. He, he, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he basically answered with this priority. Here's one of the times that he said it. Luke 10, 27. He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's the key to succeeding at life in shorthand. More than an echo in those words, of course, familiar, very familiar words to his Jewish audience there. They're, they're remembering the, the thing called the, the schema, the shema from uh, Deuteronomy, early part of the law that God gave. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got, basically, Deuteronomy 6. And then a few verses later, fear the Lord your God, serve him only. Jesus himself, at the beginning of his ministry, remember, he quoted these words as he was faced with all of those temptations in the wilderness the devil was throwing things at him, and he was reminding himself, effectively, as well as the enemy. I think he was speaking over himself. And he goes, no, worship the Lord God and him alone. Serve him only. Luke 4, 8. Worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. Top priority. No other idols. God first. In everything. That's successful living right there. That's how we're designed to live. God first. There's a church called God first. I love that they call themselves that. Reminder, every time they think about who they are, God first. Not degree first, school first, not even family first. Marriage first, no. Arsenal first, close, but no. <laughs> Beer first, hope not. God First, top priority, love the Lord your God. In formal language, we might say it's the first commandment. 
And in this story, there's a few different characters, but the thing is that is mainly remembered, the thing, the reason that it's told down the ages is this outrageous act of worship, of putting God first in everything here from Mary, her devotion here. What the Lord, I think, is drawing our attention to tonight here is the primary place of worship in the life of anybody who wants to live successfully, that is to say, to live God's way. There's no other way to a true success in life than doing it God's way. He's the author of it. So you want to succeed, you're, you're here tonight, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and if you don't yet, of course, you're tremendously welcome here. God will speak to you, I know, he already is. But if you are, then you're aligning yourself with this priority. Friends, we are aligning ourselves with this priority, God first, in everything. Loving, fearing, worshipping God with everything that we've got. If I did a little bit of word association football, you know where I say a word and you think of your associations. I wonder what crops up. I say Arsenal, you think, you know, winners, champions, whatever. <laughs> Absolutely, you think Cambridge boat race. Yeah, you think winners, exactly. Um, I don't know, whatever. Burger King opening on the high street. Come on, good news. Um, whatever else. And, but I say worship, and I'm wondering what comes into your head when I say that word. And I just want to take a couple of minutes. I'm not keen on the whole definition thing, particularly the dictionary is nowhere near sophisticated enough or or, or 3D enough to capture anything like what we understand by this beautiful, slightly mysterious, slippery word called worship in its depth and its profoundness. Everybody has a go at defining it. I'm not so much wanting to do that, but there's a kind of really broad view of worship that goes, well, it's basically everything that I do for God. All of my kind of living for God, all of my serving, all of my... um, you know, stuff, uh, giving money to, to good causes, helping old ladies across roads, studying hard for my degree. It's all, all worship. And, and people in that camp might look at Romans 12 and go, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. That would be to take a, a pretty vo- broad view. It's kind of all of my life as a Christian. That's all worship. A narrow view, the other end of the spectrum, might be it's basically singing. And preferably with a guitar and drums. And ideally with quite nice lighting uh, and with fairly decent coffee served afterwards. That's worship, right? Of course, I'm exaggerating a bit. Let's just nail it briefly, and I got, this isn't, I'm not going to go into this too much. Let's just nail it briefly a little bit, though. Uh, worship doesn't start with actions, right? It uh, starts with attitudes. It doesn't begin with actions. It starts with attitudes. It starts in the heart. It doesn't start with our hands or our feet or our voices. It expresses itself there, but it starts inside, doesn't it? So helping out your friend in need or studying hard for your degree or giving your money away might be a way that we worship. Or it might just be a religious act of duty or obligation or for some other reason. Um, to manipulate somebody or get something back or earn a reputation for yourself or whatever. Wouldn't quite be so worshipful then, would it? My singing might be an act of worship, or it might not. It depends on the heart. I'll dare to say this very kindly, and it comes with absolutely no criticism or judgment at all. But just because all of us have sung tonight doesn't necessarily per se mean that all of us have worshipped tonight, does it? In fact, Jesus had some fairly sharp, a sharp way of putting that, didn't he? Do you remember when he said, these people, they honour me with their lips. You know, they know the tune, and they know the words, and they can sing along, but their, their hearts are far from me. They're not worshippers yet. Ouch. I used to get a bit uptight about this. My family used to get bored when I said it, so, and I have chilled out a bit. But phrases like, um, the worship was really amazing, or I loved the worship, or um, 
we're going to have some worship. Uh, it used to get up my nose a bit, if I'm really honest. Um, it just sounds a little bit, or can sound a little bit consumerist, a bit like, it's a bit like saying the film was amazing, or um, we're going to have some ice cream, um, or you know, I prefer this, or I prefer that. Uh, you know what I'm saying. And, and we don't want to be consumers, do we? We don't want to, we don't want to make, be making judgments about the worship. I think I've realized now that's, that's actually, when we say that, what we're really saying, it's a shorthand for saying, I, I enjoyed worshiping the Lord, isn't it? That's what we're really meaning. I, I sensed God's presence as I engaged in this act of, of devotion, and it was fantastic, and it was great to enjoy that. God has designed us to, to do that. It was incredibly uplifting as we encountered Jesus in worship. But I just suggest we might monitor ourselves just a little bit. Language does matter. And I think that the reality is that the only person who can complete the sentence which begins, the worship was, is God. I'm not sure we can necessarily complete that. You certainly can't complete it for me. You can't tell me how I worshipped, and I can't tell you how you worshipped. So let's not engage in that kind of, those kind of superficial judgments. So a little tip, perhaps. I find it helpful to use worship more as a verb than a noun. I don't know if that's, you might find that helpful. I'm not making a big deal of this. I'm just kind of setting the scene for us. So it was great worshipping God tonight. Uh, that might just be a touch more helpful than the worship was amazing if we just meant that you know, we love Josh as much as we do love Josh and the band. So let's leave God to judge the quality. So there's this, there's this double thing going on, attitude, action. Think of it like this. Think, think maybe about marriage. So I'm married to Hill. So, so marriage for me is, is a way of, being, it's a way of life. It has a lot of implications for the way that I do life. I do decisions. I make decisions. When I go food shopping, I don't just buy for me. I remember that I'm married and buy food for Hills as well. We, we talk about stuff. We text. We communicate. We, when we're thinking about where we go on holiday, we do it together. We take each other's preferences into account. There's something about marriage that embraces all of those things, of course, and many, many more. But if that's all, if all that it was, if there was no then expression then it would be deficient, wouldn't it? it also, my marriage also needs to flourish expressions of closeness. It needs times of great intimacy. It needs moments when we're really close and we express that physically and verbally and emotionally. And our marriage would be lacking something if, if that didn't happen. So one without the other doesn't work. So too with worship. Yes, it has this breadth to it. Worship is a way of life. We used to give seminars at New Wine about that every year. Do you remember? Some of us long in the tooth. Worship is a way of life. So, for example, did you know, can I remind you, that one of the Hebrew words for worship is the same as one of the Hebrew words for work? Do you see your work as your worship? If you do, that changes kind of how you go about it, doesn't it? It changes your relationship with your, your colleagues or those staff members or your customers or your bosses or your manager or your fellow students. My work is my worship. My, my worship. my workstation becomes my worship station. The way that I engage with what God has given me to do becomes an act of worship. That's incredibly significant. No less an act of worship than uh, to, to sing the songs that we do. So, so there is a broad sense in which that is all true, but there also need to be times of closeness and expressions of devotion and intimacy, physical, verbal, emotional, and so on. It's not always easy, this bit, for those of us who are a little bit wired towards achieving stuff. We're the doers. We like goals. We like outcomes. We like results. It can be a little bit harder for, if you're wired a bit that way where encountering Jesus in acts of worship, acts of intimacy and closeness that we're about to read, are not about outcomes and results and achieving something. 
They're not about getting it done so I can tick the next thing off my list. Some of you will know what I mean about that. So here's John 12. The context is a meal. It's given in Jesus' honor, verse 2, to celebrate him. And whilst Jesus eats a lot in the Gospels, actually, that's quite unusual. I'm not sure there's many occasions where it's in Jesus' honor. He's there and gathered around him are a bunch of friends who are there with him and for him. So actually, let's just put in brackets. This is a little bit of a foretaste of church right here. People there with Jesus, for Jesus. Whole bunch, quite a variety. The text makes clear there's quite a few. Some are named, some aren't. And, and within the bunch, let's just notice briefly, Martha is serving. Seems to be one of the things that she, we find her often doing. That's part of her worship. And by the way, in any gathering, somebody has to serve. Thank you to those who have been serving us tonight. That's made it possible for the rest not to have to do that. For, for Josh and the band and the tech guys and the hospitality team. There always needs to be some, some people doing that. That's part of the way that they're serving. And we're blessed. Thank you. And then there's Lazarus uh, reclining. He's in receiving mode. The text doesn't say this, of course. I I suspect he's probably still in shock, don't you think? I think kind of pinching himself to think, my goodness, a couple of days ago, because it's just in the previous chapter, I was in a cave rotting, (laughs) deader than dead. And um, is this a grape I see before me now? I'm spreading hummus on the pita bread or whatever he was eating and thinking, my goodness, I'm alive, reclining, chilling out perhaps, hanging out. I reckon church needs to create space for the the, the reclining, the hanging out. Actually, by the way, it's quite brave that they put this on because the fact that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead uh, attracted a lot of people towards Jesus, the authorities, the religious police, they didn't like that very much. And so they were looking for a way not only now to get at Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus which is a bit ironic given that he'd already died once and he's going to be killed again. Anyhow, so it's quite a little bit dangerous what they're doing here, but then church often is. Oh, let's hear it for danger. More danger, please, Lord, it, it helps us. But the spotlight falls on Mary. Let's come to this. Here, here she is. Uh, as elsewhere, we find her sitting at Jesus' feet and she's giving her whole attention, her whole devotion to Jesus in this extraordinary way. Let's not miss this because we're familiar or some of us familiar with the story. Let's not miss the outrage here, the scandal. Uh, This moment of expression of the inner attitude of the heart, this action of worship that's at the heart of it. So are we there in our imaginations? The alabaster jar, um, not quite sure what alabaster is, but it doesn't really matter too much. It's it's what they kept stuff in. There's a pint of this stuff. Um, Most of us can imagine what a pint of stuff is. Uh, and I think she breaks off the top. I think that's how it works. And she pours all of this uh, perfume, expensive perfume, over Jesus' feet. Other versions say over his head as well. Head, perhaps, and feet. And then she wipes it with her hair. Just three simple observations. And none of them will take too long. Met about this, this act of devotion. Mary's uh, amazing, kind of authentic expression of what's inside her for her Lord. Love the Lord your God. God first in everything. She's, she's come to have a sense. She doesn't know everything. But she knows enough now about who this man is that he's not just a man. He's so much more. He has become her healer. He has become more than a rabbi, more than a teacher of amazing stories and truths. She, she had, a, I think, a full sense that she, he was going to be her saviour in the fullest sense of that word, but was already for sure her master and her Lord, worthy of all of her devotion as unto God. 
So first uh, thing, it's extravagant, isn't it? This worship is tremendously extravagant. Kind of goes without saying. Clear from verse 5, this is not a small amount. It's a whole pint. We're not talking about a little dab. Nor is it cheap stuff. This is not the rip-off kind of fragrance that might say Dior on the outside, but actually inside it's um, whatever, you know, super, super drug own brand or, or Poundland or whatever it is. This is the real stuff. Extravagant. This is not therefore pretend worship. Kind of looks like worship, but it's not really. I speak to myself when I say this. I, I've been there. I can do pretend worship. I can do what looks like an act of devotion. I can do that. I suspect most of us can. We're pretty adept as human beings at wearing masks. It's not that. It's not that thing. It's not, well, I'll do as much as I need to to salve my conscience and and then kind of move on. No. And, And it's not that. Expensive. Really expensive. Extravagant. This costs. In monetary value, a year's wages, current UK average wage, apparently, Google it, around about 29K. A lot will be on a lot less than that. A lot will be on a lot more than that. But let's put it in that range. Even 20K, let's say that. 20,000 a year. And it goes in a matter of seconds. The whole lot. 20,000 pounds worth of liquid poured out on Jesus' head and feet. Spent. Bottles empty. Can't be retrieved. Can't be used again. By the time Jesus has woken up the next day, maybe walked a few miles on the dusty roads, there is no longer any trace of the 20 grand. Very extravagant gift. I've got 20 grand's worth of notes in my hand right here. I've got some of you looking up and falling asleep. (laughs) Pour a bit of petrol on it. Get Mike's cigarette lighter. 20 grand. It's not normal behavior. This didn't normally happen, by the way. There are various bits of Jewish custom that, that we're not familiar with, which were more familiar in, the, in their environment. Some of, the, some of the pouring out, the anointing in this way, was a more familiar thing than it is to us. But not 20 grand's worth, not in one go. Not a year's wages. So not surprisingly, there's, there's objection there's opposition. Here's Judas. And okay, we, we find that his motives are not exactly pure. The text tells us actually he wasn't that interested. He just wanted to put his hand in the cookie jar because he was the treasurer. But effectively, the opposition comes. That is so over the top. That is so unnecessary. That is outrageous. It's wrong even that you would do that. How could you do that? We could have used that for far better things. That money could have fed people, it could have clothed people, it could have housed the homeless. What a waste. Truth is that it's not just Judas, is it? I reckon that there is always opposition to authentic, extravagant worship, costly worship, from all kinds of directions, the world, the flesh, the devil, from outside and actually from inside. I reckon it's always opposed. I reckon there are always objections. Some kind of looking on, or maybe it's us looking on at others, going, it's over the top, it's unnecessary, waste of time, too wasteful of energy, resources. We slip into kind of judgment mode, beginning to even to judge other people's motives, even judge other people's uh, worships or their acts of, of worship. We get critical, we get religious, we get rational, start saying it's a waste. Why sing so many songs? Why take so long over this in our tradition? Why keep repeating the same lines? It's just a waste of words. 
Never mind, by the way, that the angels sang holy, holy, holy quite a lot. Why spend so much on the heating and the, and the lighting and the instruments and the nice coffee? And on and on. Do you, you, the kind of object, you, you know what I mean? Fill in the blank. A kind of poverty mindset mode, I might say, doesn't see God as a, as a God of abundance, but as a kind of pie God where the, the pie is limited and we can't spend this on this because then there won't be enough for that. That kind of objection. Could do so much else. What a waste. Don't be so extravagant. Something is a waste in our language when what? When you give too much to get nothing or too little in return. So the implication of the objection here is that Mary is, has given too much to Jesus to get what? To get what in return? That's where the objection comes from, isn't it? Because you see, Judas and, and, and others, they see this in transactional, in transactional terms. You give something in order to get something. That's how the world works. It's how we're wired as human beings from the very earliest stage, from the cradle, actually. Ooh, if I, if I smile like that, I get a bit more attention and more cuddles, so I'll do it again. We're wired that we get something when we give something. It's just how our world works. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. It's just it doesn't apply here. Mary's not looking to get something. She's happy to be extravagant. She's happy to blow 20 grand. Because <laughs> he's worth it. Worship is not a transaction. Sing five songs loudly and God's more likely to answer my prayers. Fast for Lent and he'll be really, really pleased with me. I wave my hands in the air really passionately and God loves me and blesses me just a little bit more or he's a bit less disappointed in me than I think he is. No, it's not a transaction. Is it true to say that we, that we don't benefit from worship? Well, actually, no, of course, actually, we do. That's the great, extraordinary exchange. As, as we give ourselves in worship, it's not that God requires our worship in order to kind of feel good about himself and he needs us to prop up his reputation. He invites it because actually, in the end, it draws us in towards his presence. It draws us into a closer uh, relationship with him. It draws us into a better place with him where we thrive, God first, we're set up to thrive with God. Worship helps us to do that. So actually, in the end, we do benefit. That's God's economy. But it's in giving ourselves away that it happens. So that language of, of wastefulness, of, of, of transaction, you give something to get something, it's all rational, isn't it? I might say religious too. Well, the problem is that the kingdom of God doesn't operate rationally. That's really offensive to us quite a lot of the time doesn't operate in that way. It works relationally. We know that. Not rationally, relationally. I happened to notice the other day, I love being a wordy kind of a person, that the difference between those two words is the presence of E-L in those words. E-L is another Hebrew word for God. Not rational. Kingdom of God is not a kingdom that runs on logic and, and rationality or relig religiosity. It runs on relationship with God at the heart of it. Authentic, extravagant, expensive. Worship that costs plenty then. It costs her a lot here. Worship that will attract opposition. It will attract judgment from the religious, from the rational mindset that doesn't understand value and worth from a kingdom perspective, only understands it from an earthly, human perspective. You're going over the top. You're going too far. It can sound very reasonable, by the way. Oh, I don't mind, but you might put a few people off if you're that, if you're that extravagant or whatever. Tone it down a bit. It's not very British. It looks a bit weird. Whatever. Guess what? Back to the story. Jesus loves it. 
He welcomes it. In Mark's version of the story, chapter 14, verse 6, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And the truth is, sometimes it does come easily. I'm not claiming that all worship is costly or needs to be. Sometimes there are just moments, you'll, you'll share it in the room, I know, where all you just want to do, it comes from the heart, it's easy, it feels like it doesn't cost anything. Beautiful. And it can be extravagant in that place, but sometimes it does. Sometimes it's costly because of the opposition from outside. And by the way, sometimes it's costly because of the opposition from inside. What do I mean? It's the reluctance, it's the feelings thing. It's, I don't really want to. I'm not really in that place. I don't want to offer extravagant worship. I don't want to express my devotion to Jesus because in this moment, I don't feel it. That's just not where I'm at. I'm in a place of whatever, difficulty, toughness, distraction. I haven't got time. People will think I'm odd. I'm not in a good place with God. I've got too much going on in my life. All of that stuff. Recognize any of that? That's the internal thing, isn't it? Not yet. I'm, I'm waiting for something better to happen. I'm waiting to get over this phase of my life. Then I might get a bit more extravagant in my worship or my, my devotion. God first. Only when the sun's out? Or God first when it's raining as well? What do you think? It is a choice in the end. Feelings matter. Of course they do. Desire matters. We speak about this a lot. That's why we pray, don't we? More hunger, Lord. More hunger. Stir a passion. You stir it, God. I'm recognizing my lack of passion. You stir it. Of course it is. But in the end, worship's a choice. It's a choice to keep expressing Worship, should I say. And of course, it's not ultimately about the song or the perfume or the money or even how I feel. It's about choosing to pour myself out before someone else who is God and not me in adoration. David says in a beautiful story, I haven't got time to go there, 1 Chronicles 21, shall I give to God that which costs me nothing? Shall I give to God that which costs me nothing? It doesn't cost me anything. I wonder how much it's worth. Paul and Silas singing in, in chains in the prison. That's costly. So we say this, don't we? The Bible says it. That worship sometimes, to express worship, to express this devotion, is sometimes what we call a sacrifice. We don't really like that word. But it's a sacrifice of praise. It comes through hardship. It comes almost through gritted teeth. It comes despite circumstances, but not because of them, because things are, are tricky and tough in different ways. Your health is bad, your work is boring, you failed an exam, your relationships are in a bad state, choosing to worship. We all love the Psalms. I think that's pretty much why we love the Psalms. Hills and I read a, um, a, we start our day with a Psalm together and pray together over a Psalm every day, have done for the last few years. And uh, one of the many reasons that we love the Psalms, isn't it, all of us, is that it expresses all human emotion, and so many of them are tricky emotions and difficult ones and people going through valleys, as there are in the room now. And so many of them still end up, but God, or yet I will praise you. So inspiring. So inspiring to know people and see people and sing those songs. And to, we need to keep encouraging each other to do that, obviously. So we'll only think that uh, extravagant worshipping is a waste when we don't know what Jesus is worth.
So that question, challenging question, what is my worship costing me? Next to, much, much more quickly, authentic worship, worship is intimate. Let's just nail this one too. Wiping, wiping Jesus' feet with her hair is a very intimate thing to do by anybody's standard. It's not unheard of in Jewish tradition, so it's more familiar there than here, but nonetheless, a very intimate thing to do. Not at all British, almost awkward, meant to be a close connection, awkward maybe even for somebody watching. There's a physical act involved here, there's physicality involved. You will be aware that so many of the words that are translated worship or can be in the Bible are actually at root Hebrew words that have actions associated with them, kneeling, lying, uh, I don't know, waving, I, I can't remember what some of them are, but different body postures, right? Bodily positions, because these are expressions. You find lots of them in the Psalms. Will you indulge me for a couple of minutes? There's a very serious academic theological uh, explanation of this, which many of you in the room will have um, enjoyed over, uh, over your lifetime. But just in case there's anybody in the room, it's kind of rite of passage that you have to be exposed to this theological explanation of correct ways to, to worship. Thank you, Hudson. <clears throat> Would you agree with me? It's completely natural to use our bodies to do stuff, to, ex to express things, isn't it? Uh, and please don't hear me, and I hope there's never any pressure in any way. There's freedom. You know, where Jesus is, there's freedom. Uh, so, so nobody's ever going to put anything on us. That's ridiculous. We're free, and we shouldn't put ex expectations on each other. But all to say that, 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 that there needs to be a freedom, doesn't there? And, uh, and we need to be okay about that. And part of our security is being able, in, certain, in some of these uh, worship contexts that we're talking about, like this kind of a one, uh, to, to have freedom. And I know that you know that, but it's always just worth saying, I think. Um, I was released into, from some of my kind of more repressed British um, stiff upper lip kind of emotions many, many years ago. I love sport. You know that. I absolutely love, I love watching sport. I, I love Arsenal, you know, truth to tell. I love rugby. I love watching a whole bunch of stuff. And one of my friends just super challenged me. He said, Tim, whenever you go, you're watching TV and Arsenal score a goal or, rug or England score a try, uh, a rugby or whatever, you, you go, you know, in, in Tim Grew terms, mildly bonkers. Um, why is it that you wouldn't bring that same bodily manifestation with arms and excitement or whatever to the object of your devotion, who is Jesus. Of course, it's normal. Toddlers, they run with their arms open to, to, for their parent to pick them up. It's a posture of worship. Extravagant, intimate, last one, really quick. True worship changes the atmosphere. I'm not going to make a big deal of this. I'm not even going to make a tidy theology of it. I'm just going to say it because I happen to believe it, uh, and I'm working around developing a theology to support what I think. Um, verse, verse 3, um, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, Mary's hair thing, by the way, I, I'm pretty sure it took some time. I, think, I don't think this was a quick thing. I think it took time. That speaks to me about not rushing this. Again, it speaks about no particular outcome, no goal, not looking for certain kind of results here or anything like that. Um, but th th she, she, she dwelt in this moment of adoration. Uh, and there's a, there's a pause going on here. And so again, in brackets, activity, overactivity, activism is the enemy of adoration. I just want to say that to, to our culture, to our society, our generation. Activism, just being busy, busy, busy. It's the enemy of adoration. Adoration requires time. But in this moment, as she stops, as she pauses, she gets uh, on her knees in front of God in this beautiful expression of worship. There is actually an outcome. There is a kind of result. Well, here is one of them. There is a physical change in the environment. Fragrance fills the house. 
Must have been extraordinary, must have been beautiful, I suppose, unless you're on the, the religious rational team who, who didn't like it. There's an effect, it makes a difference. And we don't really know what that difference is, we're not told, so I'm speculating. But I believe that there's something about fragrance. When we encounter the Lord in worship, there's something around the presence of God himself that is kind of heightened and magnified. There's intimacy in his presence. There's expressions of devotion happening that are arising from our hearts that are being given to him in this beautiful place. That change contributes to change in the spiritual atmosphere. I've been around here many, many years, as you know, and I've lost count now of the number of times that, the people, that people have come into this building for the first time, quite often actually off the street, of the car park, whatever they just find themselves in. And I have conversations often, maybe there's one or two of those here tonight, uh, and they don't have language necessarily to bring to it, but they'll go, there's something really strange here. It felt like magic or, or whatever language they might bring to it. What do you suppose that is? It's the presence of God. It's the fragrance of Jesus. It's something that happens in the atmosphere when the people of God put God first in this particular way and worship in this particular way. And there's something around his presence. We, we get caught up in his presence. His presence is, is, is manifest, is thicker. We talk about thin places and so on. You just know, we go to a retreat place called Falderbrunnen over in West Wales. Anybody else been over there? It's a fantastic place. If you want to really get away from it all, three hours west before you fall into the Irish Sea, stop at Falderbrunnen, go up the hill and, and have a, a day or two in their, in their place. It's amazing. And why is it amazing? Because it's a, it's a place which has been much worshipped in, much prayed in, and you sense it. You really sense it. There's a fragrance there, the fragrance of Jesus, I want to say. And it's incredibly attractive. Paul talks about the aroma of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 2. He actually says, describes it of us. We are the aroma of Christ, he says. We who, who spend time in God's presence, who spend time as worshippers in our different environments, we carry this fragrance. It's something that we are to release into the world. It's all about him. It's all about him. Final story song actually some of you remember the song but again it, it, uh, the story but it, it, it bears retelling again and again I think because it, it speaks to every generation every culture uh, where in Soul Survivor over in Watford I'm guessing 20 years ago they got to a point where the act of worship somebody kind of realized it dawned on them this just feels a bit consumerist it was a bit like going to the cinema and was it a good film or wasn't it a good film did I enjoy it or didn't I enjoy it as if it was all about them and, and you might remember the story that they said okay we, we've got to do something here we've got to we've got to down tools we've got to down instruments and so they just said okay the next week don't no, no band no instruments no nothing organized like that um, it risks being too entertaining so just just come and they spent several weeks just seeing what God would do and the, the offering that they might be and somebody might have brought a poem or a word or something or, or some silence and they still worshipped. They really, really worshipped. And Matt Redman, who was the leader of that, uh, the, the bands there, the team there, the worship team there, he wrote this song, as you know, and I'll just read it. We may sing it in a minute or two as well, uh, that came out of that time. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring Something that's of worth that will bless your heart. And I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. So I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you. The fragrance filled the room.
It extended. We carrying the presence of God. We're to be the aroma of Christ. Who, who, that song went all around the world. This story, John 12, has gone all around the world. It's traveled down the ages and it's traveled well. Why? Because it tells us the most important thing that we can be doing in response to the most important thing that has ever happened to us. The most important thing that has ever happened to us is that God loves us. And our first response must always be that of worship. Love the Lord your God. Worship and serve him only. Let's stand together. Let's stand.